And take your Bibles tonight and turn to the book of Nehemiah. Not, we're not going to do that video, Kev, so. Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter all the way through chapter 2 and verse 4. The words of Nehemiah, his name means God is comfort. Not so much comfort like comfort that a pillow brings you, but comfort meaning like the Isaiah chapter 40 and on comfort. Comfort meaning God's going to come and restore you. That kind of comfort, which is fitting for what he does. The son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month Cheslev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel. The hen and I, one of my brothers, came and certain men from Judah... And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile was in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel for which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are outcasts in the uttermost parts of heaven, for there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the king, I was the cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, which is four or five months later from Chislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why shouldn't my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. You read that passage in really the whole book of Nehemiah, and you have to ask the question, How does God build his people and how does he build the church, you would say, in our dispensation or our age? And whether you are the, can I use the, the building analogy since Nehemiah is building walls? Um, whether you are the foreman 
like Nehemiah was of the construction crew or you are one of the construction crew workers, you'll find that it's absolutely necessary to be on your knees in prayer in order to be able to do God's work. Prayer is absolutely essential to building walls. And I would tell you tonight, both physically and spiritually. The walls were completed in chapter 6, in verses 15 and 16, records that day, 52 days after they started. But if you read to the end of the book, in chapter 13, you'll find that the spiritual walls in the hearts and lives of the people were never really completed because, like if you would have seen the video we had at Reviews, and we will show it sometime, um, the book Ezra and Nehemiah both end on kind of an anticlimactic note. Um, not a very positive note, actually. Because all the walls were finished of the city, they, the walls of God's people and their lives were not finished. In fact, the entire last chapter is Nehemiah upbraiding them and chastising the people of God and having to have them confess sins to the point where he said to some of the people, if you do that again, I'll pull your hair out, which seems a little bit foreign to us. But uh, that's how angry he was at what was taking place. You can't read this book in its entirety and not know that Nehemiah knew more than most people the importance of prayer. The word prayer in its various forms, pray, prayer, praying, prayed, all those things, six times in this book, Nehemiah himself is recorded as praying 11 times in this book. As one author said, and I think he was pretty accurate, that he was a leader from the knees up. And certainly that was the case. Um, and that is what I, as your pastor, desire for us to be. I would love us to be a church from the knees up. That the way that we would measure, can I say, uh, the success that we have or the kind of Christians that we are may be measured by our prayer life. Prayer is for doing God's work, and that's because it's not optional. It's absolutely essential. I would love for us this year to take a more serious look at considering prayer as not a side dish on your plate, if I can use that analogy, but the main course. I feel a lot of times for myself and you included that we might be looking at it as something as ancillary instead of something that's necessary. Um, I look at it sometimes, and I think maybe you do too, as a minor importance in our spiritual walk instead of the major importance that it really is. And so tonight I want you to see that prayer is the work of God. And really, let me boil it down to you really uh, in a simple way. I want to connect two things. If we're going to see prayer as the work of God, I want us to see a connection. That connection is how praying and doing go together. So let me ask the question, how does God use prayer? Two things that I want to show you in these chapters in a survey form. Here's how God uses prayer. First, God uses prayer to work in us. And then God uses prayer to work through us. So prayer, and if you want a definition, at least based on this text, let me give you one tonight if you're looking for prayer. Prayer is first getting God's heart into yours. That's the work that's doing, being done in us. That's chapter one. Chapter two is prayer is getting God's hands into your hands. So I want to put those two things together. Praying and doing God's heart and God's hand, your heart and your hands. I, I want to put those things together because I think that we have a problem sometimes in doing that. And I, I would like you to participate here. If we are all heart 
and no hands, that would be a problem. If we were all hands and no heart, that also is a problem. If, it's all, we, if all we do is pray, and I'm not diminishing it, that'll be a problem. If all we do is action, that'll be a problem. Let me ask you, and we'll take them one at a time. What would you think is some of the shortcomings, some of the liabilities, some of the difficulties that we would incur, or you as a person, as an individual would incur, if you are all about, it's all about your heart, but not about your hands. If you are always, in, you're praying, you're praying, praying, which is a great thing, but let's ask this, what if it never results in doing anything? How is that a problem? Tell me what that might be like. All heart, but no hands. What would that be like? Or you could, I'll let you switch it around. All hands and no heart. Yes. So we say with leadership development, you can't always be a student absorbing. You eventually have to take what you're learning and doing. So I think it's the same with prayer and action. You have to, you have to pray, but you also have to go out and do the work of God's will. Right, because if you're always taking in and never giving out, right, you're, you're really missing one of the purposes of prayer. That's absolutely right. So if you're all heart and you're no hands, that's a problem. What about the other way around or another comment about either one of those actually? What if we're all heart and no hands or all hands and no heart, what would happen? What about if you're really, go ahead, Sandy. Yes. Yeah, faith without works is dead. So you may have a strong faith, a really strong confidence in God, Right? but you yourself are not involved or doing anything. If there's a lot of weeping, which is great, but no working, right? That could be a problem. What if there's a lot of asking, but no acting? If there's a lot of busyness, but the busyness becomes what sometimes? If you think you're busy and other people aren't, what, what kind of attitude do you get for people who don't do as much as you do? You're more spiritual, right? You're superior. You're more mature. You're godly. They're lazy. You can get judgmental a little bit, right? If you think that's true, see, if you don't think that prayer is work, that's a problem. If you're all hands and no heart, you're going to do the work of God, but you may do it with a pharisaical attitude. You may do it with a superior attitude. You may do it without love and compassion because it's just about getting things done. That can happen. But it's also, if you're on the other side of the spectrum, what? If you're praying, but you're not doing, right, you're going to think that everything is about prayer and just talking to God and being with him, and that's spirituality, and you may never be implementing your life or doing things uh, to have both of them. I have heard this said. Have you ever heard this? Someone calls someone, I am a prayer warrior. Have you ever heard someone call someone a work warrior? You are such a work warrior, I've never heard that, right? So let, let me ask you, and you can be personal, maybe if, you, if you're able to do that tonight. What would you say is a tendency? Would you be more of a prayer warrior or would you be more of a work warrior? Let's, let's be, if you lean toward, I would be more of a prayer warrior, raise your hand. How many would say I'm more of a work warrior? I uh, see. Now, now, I knew that was going to happen, honestly. I did. You know, you know why I know? Because why is it easier to be a work warrior than a prayer warrior? Why is it, why do we like that more? 
Recognition, that could be too. It could be recognition because it's out in public and the other one's private, right? That's true. What else? Control. That's right. You don't control God when you pray, but you can control the circumstances when you're in charge and doing stuff. That may be true too. That's a good point. Pam? Yes, that has got to be it. Does it immediate results? You're working hard and you can control it and you, you can measure it. You can measure success because you're doing something and it's changed or it's comp- completed or it's, you know, you can, you can see it. But you don't always see that when you get on your knees. You don't always see immediate success. You can't always measure it, at least not right away. So here's what Nehemiah is after tonight, and, and I want to put these two together. It's about both. And, and I call it, here's the term I want to use, inside-out prayer. Inside-out prayer. And that is a prayer that has, this is the goal, both God's heart and his hands. Inside-out meaning prayer starts on the inside. In other words, God wants to do a work in you, chapter 1. Chapter 2, he wants to do a work through you. And I would tell you tonight that the order matters. The order matters. Let me show you what I mean. Chapter 1, he starts praying in chapter 1, verse 4. But that is based on a report. Now watch, because this is a verbal report. He gets from Hananiah, his brother, who comes and tells him that Jerusalem is decimated. The walls are broken down, which means they have no security. The gates are not there. They have no society, no government. They've been totally run over. It's been burned down, and they've been exiled. Now, it means, it, listen, it means more than just the physical problem that the city has of being destroyed. Because theologically, here's what Nehemiah knows, that the reason God's people are destroyed by the enemies and why their city has been destroyed and they're in exile is because they've been disobedient. They've been idolatrous and, and many other things for that matter. So he knows this. He knows that they have brought it on themselves. And so the Bible says he weeps and mourns and pray, prays and fasts for days. See, God's doing a work in him. You know why? Because if he's going to get God's heart, he has to see Jerusalem through God's eyes. So the first thing that God does, at least from Nehemiah's perspective, when, God, when you get God's heart, when you get on your knees, here's one of the signs. Ready? brokenness. He doesn't just talk about the walls broken down. He does that. But when he prays, you'll notice he doesn't say much at all about the walls. But you know what he talks about? The broken down people. The people that have sinned, and and he includes himself. Can I tell you this? In 2022, if you want to personally, and we as a church want to see God do great things, here's the first thing. When we get on our knees... We have to be broken. We have to be repenting. There's a beautiful little Puritan book, and I can give you my copy if you'd like to read it. I put it on my shelf, even when I'm not reading it, because the whole uh, title is just one big word, repentance. And here's what I know. I need it all the time. (laughs) Right? Brokenness. That we have broken walls and burned down gates Not only on the outside, but on the inside. See why it's called inside-out prayer? Because here's what God does. And see, so tell me if this isn't true for you. 
Our prayers are so filled with requests. God, do, do, do this for me. Do this for somebody. Do this. And that's why we take a, make a point, if you haven't noticed, to talk about worshiping God and his attributes and perfections and try not to ask things of him but worship him. You know why? Because we're so do-oriented. But we're not very be-oriented. And here's what Nehemiah says. God won't do anything through us until he first does something in us. If I regard iniquity in my heart, Psalm 66, 18, the Lord will not hear me. So when you pray, you know what the first matter, can I say, of business is? Is repenting. It's confessing our sin. It's, it's brokenness. That's what God is looking, broken down, getting the walls broken down inside of us. Can you bow your heads and hearts tonight? Right where you are, go ahead and bow your head. Would you take one minute and would you just say, God, show me where I need to repent. God, give me brokenness because a broken and contrite heart, O oh Lord, you will not despise. Would you do that? Amen. The prayer framework for Nehemiah in chapter 1, verses 4 through 11 is these two things. Who is God? That's the first part. He's covenant-keeping and all that it says about him in the first few verses. And then it says who God is, and then it says who I am. We are sinful people. We've broken your covenant. We have not kept your word. We've been unfaithful. And then he goes right between from who God is to who we are to what God has said. And he pleads God's promises. And the very last thing out of the entire prayer, which is one of the longer recorded prayers in the scriptures, the very last phrase, see this? The very last phrase, and Lord, would you give me mercy in the sight of this man? That's the request. And the request is one sentence, and it's the very last thing of the prayer. It was the last thing he asked for that had to do with the walls. Because the very first thing he needed before he ever gets to the walls and what he, God wants him to do is he has to be what God wants him to be. See, he needed God's heart. Now, we had this debate in the office today and I debated my wife about it before supper. And so there are two phrases, right? There are two times, and it's not the only time, and this is going to take way longer than I think, but in chapter 2, verse 12, you want to look at it, you can. Chapter 7, verse 5. And then I'm going to tell you, the phrase is used also in Exodus 31, 6. Exodus 35, 34, and 36, 2. Very similar concept in Leviticus 26, 36. 1 Kings 10, 24. You can get the tape later. Ezra 7, 27, 28. Jeremiah 32, 40. John 13, 2. And Revelation 17, 17. And the phrase is very similar and God has put it in my heart. 
He says it twice in Nehemiah 2.12 and 7.5. God has put it in my heart. Okay, because that's what he wanted first from Nehemiah. He wanted to say, when you get on your knees, I want you to repent and confess your sins. You know why? Because I want to put my heart in your heart. And that's what he wanted to do. In fact, Nehemiah describes what God is doing when he gets to Jerusalem as that. He said, I didn't tell anybody what God had put in my heart. And he says it later again in chapter 7 and verse 5. Now, here's the debate part. Ready? And this is going to be a little bit about how your bent is, whether you're a feeler or a thinker. But um, what did he mean by that? What did he mean by that? Let me ask you some questions and you give me some answers. When he put it in his heart, did God put something that was, did he put something in his heart and worked on something in his life that was already there? Is that what he mean? Put it in his heart because Nehemiah already had it in his heart and God was using that and he put a desire in there based on what was already there? Or was there nothing there and God created it out of nothing and put it in his heart? How many would say there was already something there and God just used that, what was already there? How many would say that? How many say, no, God, when he put it in his heart, there wasn't anything there and God put something from nothing in there? Okay, three, two-thirds, one-third maybe. All right. If God put something in his heart, when he did that, whichever it was, which one, was it supernatural and special revelation? In other words, what did God do when he put it in his heart? Was it God speaking something into his heart with a divine, can I say a divine whisper? Was it special revelation in the sense that God spoke it in his heart and he did it? And if that was the case, did he do that and bypass Nehemiah's will or did he do it through Nehemiah's will? Was it something that was providential? Was it something that was supernatural? What do you think it was? Sandy? Yes. So it wasn't supernatural information. His brother came with verse 2. The certain men came. So he had a question in his mind. So, he, and he asked a question about how the Jews were who escaped, who survived the exile, and, and about Jerusalem. So there was something in there that caused him to be concerned and ask a question. Okay. More providential than supernatural. Correct. Okay, so not special revelation. Correct. All right. Let me ask you this. Do you think Nehemiah made this statement before, about things before he left to go to Jerusalem and do what God wanted him to do? Or did he say it looking back when all of it was said and done? Is the, is the writer of the book, is he writing it in the, in the tense that he said it saying, hey, God put it in my heart, therefore, because he did that, it, it moved me to go do all these things. Or is he saying, as I look back on all the things God did and put into place, it must be that God had put it in my heart because look what happened. What do you think it was, is it from the perspective of this putting it in my heart caused me to do all this? Or as I look back, no, I did all this, as, you know, and it must be that God was behind it as I look back on it. Which one do you think it is? And maybe why. Mike. Kind of like election and predestination, both. <laughs> oh, that's pretty political, yeah. Both? 
You think he, so you think he went forward with it? Okay, so maybe a little bit of both, okay? Now let me ask you, fast forward to 21st century, ready? Very similar to it. What would you do then, based on our discussion and the conclusions you came through, when someone says something very similar today, God has laid it on my heart. You ever hear anybody say that? God has laid it on my heart. Or how about this? Some people even say, and I know tongue-in-cheek, it may not be exactly what they mean, but they have also said something like, well, I think God told me to do this. What would you say about using those types of statements? God laid it on my heart, or God told me to do it. Is you think those are similar to what Nehemiah meant when he said, God put it in my heart, or would it be something completely different? Is, what would be right or wrong about those ideas or statements? Yes. Right. So, so my point is, if, if those statements, God put it in my heart, God led me to do that, God laid it on my heart, is there a problem with the fact that if we look at them that way, that they can be entirely subjective? In other words, how would I really ever know? Is it only knowing that that is true statement based on the results? Or how, how, how would, in other words, is this something that is subjective in nature and therefore it is not really, it's more of a feeling or an intuition and that's what I'm basing it on? Or is there a way to understand it that makes it more objective than result-oriented? Ray. Well, first thing, God's never going to break his word. I heard someone say that God called me to marry an unsaved man and that's not God because that would be against his word. Um, I know there are times in my life that Right. Uh, but I know there were times in my life that I knew. I knew the day uh, God called me to the ministry. I never had a doubt of that one day in my life. And, and you go back to Ruth. God worked in the tapestry of everyday events leading us to where he wants to go. It wasn't an accident she went by God wants to go. It wasn't a passive that he and I heard from his brother. And God can use that. In fact, God bought that. Okay, let me, let me tell you, God put it in my heart. The Hebrew word for heart, let me get past the American view. The American view is it's the seat of your emotions. That's not the view of lev, Hebrew word for heart. Heart is the center of the core of your being. It includes your emotions, but also your thinking and everything that makes you, you. Right? So it's not just your feelings. I know we think, I, I really have a heart for this, meaning well, I'm really moved by that. That would be a very small part of the Hebrew word heart and all that it stands for. It's really the core of who you are and, and down to the essence of who you are, including feelings, but also thinking and everything else about you. Um, so when God put it in his heart, 
My, my thought is, and, and I like the, you know, the subjective part. This is the one, the same argument my wife <laughs> made when we were talking. She said, you know, I, you know what if you feel like you, you, know, you're, you should pray for someone or encourage them with a text? And then you text them and they, they were so down. It was such a, a godsend and you really needed it that day. Was that, was that not God putting it on your heart? And I would say, yes. But let me explain what I would say when I mean it. Um, I would say that if you look at the New Testament, that God works in your heart and you become, let's say you want to text someone and you want to encourage them, I would say that God puts it in your heart through the work of the Holy Spirit through the Bible, which is objective. Here's what I would think. Because he's making you through that methodology a certain kind of person. And we would call it, as Galatians 5 says, the fruit of the Spirit. He produces love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, gentleness, faith, temperance, all those things. He, he's making you into the person so that it came into your mind to text that person, I would say, is directly from God in this way. He put it in your heart through the work of the Spirit, taking the Word of God, moving you, and you're becoming a person who is now starting to think about the needs of others. And that one person that came into your mind was someone that you knew, and you remembered that they had a need that day, and you were working as the Spirit of God takes the word that you already know in your heart, and you're applying it to be encouraging to them. I would not personally take it as something subjective as God in some supernatural way laid it on your heart in that moment, and here's the word people use, which I'm sorry to say bothers me a little bit. God kind of nudged me. You ever heard of someone say that? Or God kind of pushed me a little bit. Because to me, those are supernatural things that God does. I mean, at some level, it's not a miraculous, raised from the dead, healing your sick, miraculous revelation or the Bible revelation, but it is God doing something to communicate to you. I don't know what nudge means, actually. I mean, if he's really nudging you or he's just putting something in your motives or I don't know what it is. But I would rather think to say when he puts it in your heart, and, and, and this is what I would say for Nehemiah. You look at chapter one. What was his whole basis of asking God to go and build the walls back? It was, you said this, chapter one, verse eight. Remember what you said to your servant Moses. What is that? The Bible. Why would God, why would he think that someone like him in the cup Paris position would might go back to Jerusalem and it might happen? Where would he get that? Because here's what God said. If you return to me with all your heart and keep my commandments, if you are scattered from, to the ends of the earth, it says in the text, which is a prophecy, then I will gather you and bring you back and rebuild. See, that's what God said. Now, God put it in his heart, but where did he get the idea that he should go back in chapter two, that he should go and do the work of the king, and maybe in the end that he's the one to do it? Because he put the pieces together, not based on subjective feelings of crying and weeping over the city, but because he had a compassion and a love based on objective word of God. That's what God's part of his next part of his redemptive story is. It's restoring Israel and rebuilding it. He knows the word of God, and I believe it moves him to do things. I would believe when you're encouraging someone, you know what the Bible says. Encourage people, and when they're hurting, and helping be there for them. And I think when you do it, I think that you are acting out on what you know the word of God says. And the ministry of the Spirit isn't nudging you. It's growing you and maturing you and working through in you to do what you know God says is what you ought to do in your relationships with people. 
Now, we can debate that more, but let me get to the second one because our time's up. We have one minute, so it's not going to happen. How can I know, and we're only going to do one part, how can I know if I have God's heart? How can I know? Well, Nehemiah prays, watch. Can I tell you? If you want to know if you have God's heart, Nehemiah prays, and the Chislev Nisan is about four to five months' time. I call it the crockpot prayer. You know what you do when you put, have a crockpot? You put all that stuff in there in the morning, turn it on, and what do you do? You go to work, you come home at the end of the day, and it's been in there all day, what? Yeah, simmering and cooking, and, and what's the word? Um, marinating. Oh, I love that word. Right? It's been marinating all day long in there, and you get it out, and you go, oh, it's so nice and tender. It's so good. See, I think prayer does that. It marin- he's marinating and knowing God's heart for four and a half months. See, you don't get God's heart. Listen, you don't get God's heart by just praying once in a while in a crisis situation or a big event comes up. See, there's two things. He's got the big prayer in 2-4 when he goes before the king and he shoots this quick arrow prayer and he asks God for success on the day that it matters the most. But where did that come from? It came out of a life for the last four to five months where he was getting God's heart all along. See, when you get God's heart, here's how you know. It'll move you emotionally. That was happening at the beginning. You will have feelings and emotions. It'll move you. He cri- and it wasn't he mourned and fasted and cried for minutes. It was days. So yeah, there will be feelings and emotion. But listen, it, mo- it moved him more than that. It moved him practically. Because here's what he says. Lord, here's what I want to do. See, I want to do. I'm going to go ask this. Now how far would he move? Watch this. What would he do? He would go in front of the king and risk his life to get it done. Can I tell you, that's when you know you have God's heart. Standing before the king when you're the cupbearer and you're sad, capital offense. Because most of the times it means you're planning and having a plot because you're sad or you're distracted and you might be involved in ending his life by poisoning him, which happened often. And so you couldn't be sad in his presence. So the king, and so that's why the Bible says, when the king says, you're sad, that can't be anything but sorrow of heart. And he says, I was dreadfully afraid. Why? Because he wasn't hiding his emotions anymore and the king knew it and he might lose his head. But you know what? When you have God's heart, that's what you do. You go into his presence and you risk it. And that's why he prayed for success that day. How do you know if you have God's heart? It moves you emotionally, it moves you practically, and you risk. Can I tell you one thing? One more, and we're done. Years later, before I should, years earlier, Artaxerxes under Ezra in chapter four had already made a, a decree that they should stop building the walls because the people that were around them were convincing the king that they were rebelling, and once they had their defenses of their city, they would totally rebel, and he believed it, and he stopped the building. It had been probably a couple of years. So no one had been built for years. And so Nehemiah being sat in the king's presence and asking him to reverse what he himself had put stopped made the king look stupid. You're going to say, hey, basically, you've ruined it for my people. And when he says, hey, my city is ruins and they're broken down, how could I not be sad? Basically saying, and you're the one who did it. Can you reverse that? Now, that's not the greatest plan or strategy, but it was his. And get, listen, It worked. You know why? Because God had put it in his heart. Because when you do what the story of the Bible says is going to happen, you can't be stopped. That's what we need. Can I say, friends, 
We need to know the story. Listen, we need to know what God's doing in this world, what he said he's going to do. And when you get behind it and you get on your knees and you're moved by it and you get God's heart, things begin to happen in your life through prayer. And that's why the heart and the hands connected, but we don't have time for that tonight. But at least ask yourself the question tonight as we finish. When I get on my knees, do I have God's heart? Two phrases, two, two, two ways to know. Will I have brokenness and will I have boldness? Brokenness and boldness. Will I have brokenness over my sin and boldness to go after God's story? Those are two good measurements for us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you tonight and we just want to be part of your story, both individually and as a church. We want to follow the patterns of Scripture of how you do things and what your Bible says and your words say and your promises say about what you do in our world to build your church and why you're doing it that way, and how we can align ourselves with your story. We don't want to live in our story, and we certainly don't want to live in the world's story. But too often our prayers reflect that we're living in the wrong story. Nehemiah was such a man of prayer and had so many great things happen because he lived in your story and he had your heart. May that be true of us as well. All for your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.